Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we will be talking about the near-term effects of robotic technology, interesting developments in the world of human-robot interaction, and where we might find ourselves in this in this future. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Kate Darling, who's a leading expert in robot ethics. She's a researcher at the MIT Media Lab, where she investigates social robotics and conducts experimental studies on human-robot interaction. Kate explores the emotional connection between people and lifelike machines, seeking to influence technology design and policy direction. Kate's work has been featured in Vogue, The New Yorker, The Guardian, Forbes, Wired, and many, many, many more. Welcome, Kate. We're so happy that you wanted to join us. Thank you so much for having me. So we like to kick off this podcast with two questions to uh, allow the listeners to get to know you a bit better or your personal life a bit better. Uh, What's your morning routine? Well, I have a toddler, so I usually get woken up without wanting to be awake yet and uh, need to get out of bed right away. And um, we usually feed him breakfast together. So my husband, myself and my toddler sit in the kitchen and my husband makes coffee and I make oatmeal and we all eat together. Oh, that sounds really nice. And you guys live in Boston? Yes. So the next question, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, you step out of this zone a lot, but when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone? Oh, um, uh, probably when I gave birth. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I was very much outside of my comfort zone and yeah. very new and uh, crazy experience. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that, to be honest. It's, you know, you forget about it. Like the next day I was like, oh, that wasn't too bad. I could do it again, which seems like maybe I was programmed to feel that way so that I'd do it again. I guess we are. That's why we keep making babies. Um, Well, anyways, uh, Kate, full disclosure, I think your work is beyond fascinating and I've been following you for some time. And I think the interview that you did on Sam Harris's podcast was incredibly exciting. And everyone that I talk to in technology is in awe of all the developments that we're seeing in the robotics field, and you have your pulse literally right on it. But first, can you tell me why and how and where your interest and fascination for robots started? Oh, my goodness. I've I've always just loved robots, and I read so much science fiction when I was a teenager, and my dad loves robots, and I, I, for some reason, didn't think that I could be a roboticist. And so I studied law and did social sciences and then kept finding my way back to robots somehow. So I'm back and and I get to play with robots every day now and I love it. So why did you think that you could become a roboticist? It's hard to say. Um, But, you know, when I was younger, there wasn't a lot of representation. There wasn't a lot of women uh, women, there there just weren't a lot of female scientists in the field that I could really see. So it, I guess it just never occurred to me that I could become a programmer or a roboticist or work in a technology field. Yeah, uh, I work actively to engage young girls into technology today. So this is unfortunately still a problem. Um, but I'm glad that you're there and that you're a role model in tech because we truly need you. Um, but for the listeners who are familiar with your field of work, because it, it's quite different to at least a lot of the Scandinavians listening, would you give us like a 411 on what it is that you do on a daily basis? <laughs> sure. So like I said, I have a social sciences background and 
I'm interested in how people interact with robotic technology. And in particular, what interests me most about robots is that people will treat them like they're alive, even though they know that they're just machines. And so the psychology of that is very interesting. There's a whole field of research called human-robot interaction that looks at that. But I'm also interested in the um, societal effects of integrating robotic technology and having people treat it differently than other devices. So from a legal, social, and ethical perspective, what does it mean that robots are now moving from behind factory walls where they've been kind of hidden into shared spaces where they're moving into workplaces and households and people are interacting with them more and we're seeing People treat them differently than toasters. And so what do we do about that? What consequences does that have? And we are going to be diving into that shortly. Um, but actually, kind of uh, immediately, I saw your TED Talk. Um, and uh, I saw that you conduct a lot of interesting studies related to human-robot interaction, obviously. And that you did a study where you made people smash robots. And then you looked at the effect of giving the robot a name or a backstory and also the relationship between the participants' general tendencies for empathy and how long they hesitated to hit the robot. Can you tell us about how this experiment came about and what the results were? <laughs> sure. Uh, it came about because um, I had done a workshop with my friend Hannes Gosseltz a few years before. Um, it was just a workshop. This wasn't science, but we gave people baby dinosaur robots that were really cute, and we had them play with them and name them, and then we told them to torture and kill them. And <laughs> it was so dramatic. Oh it, my was, God. It, sounds, it sounds dramatic. Yes, they really refused to even hit the robots, and so we had to improvise and kind of force them. We, we said, okay, you can save your group's robot if you destroy another group's robot. And then they couldn't do that. And we finally made them, we, we told them we would destroy all the robots unless someone destroyed one of them and some guy did. But that workshop was just so interesting. It was over the course of two hours watching people's reactions. And it was adults. They knew that they were interacting with what was just a machine that had been purchased specifically to be destroyed, but they still had a lot of trouble doing it. And so that inspired the research that I did later on with Palash Nandi and Cynthia Brazil at MIT, where we were trying to look at some of the factors we had observed in the workshop, like, oh, we had them give the robot a name. Did that actually make a difference in terms of their emotional attachment to it? And we were looking at do people's tendencies for empathy relate to their hesitation to hurt a robot? And so we took those two factors and looked at them in an experiment. And, you know, it was just a little study. Um, but, yeah, we found we found pretty much the results that we thought we might find, which is that it mattered, the name mattered, and people's tendencies for empathy did correlate with how much they were willing to hit the robot. Huh. So why do humans, or we, basically, because we're humans, why do we react in certain ways to these robots? I mean, what's, what is the psychology behind that, and what do our reactions... I mean, you just said that it kind of reveals our empathy or it correlates with our empathy, but, I mean, what does that tell us about humans, the way, the way that we kind of react to them, if they look like animals or if they look like us or... I mean, what's, what, what is that psychology? Well, I don't... You know, some people think it sounds silly or think that it's silly to treat robots like living things, but I actually don't think it's silly at all. There's a lot of reasons we do this. Some of them are cultural, so science fiction and pop culture influences us. You know, we have all of these personified robots and stories, and so we like to 
do that to the robots in our lives as well. There's some of it is the novelty of the technology. Um, not everyone has interacted with life like robots before. And so when they come into shared spaces, people will respond to that. But then there's this deeper aspect of anthropomorphism where we're just biologically hardwired to project ourselves onto others. So whether that's other people or whether that's projecting emotions onto animals or whether that's inanimate objects, um, we, we tend to be, project ourselves and become emotionally attached to um, other things. And robots additionally have the aspect of autonomous movement, which is something that we're very hardwired to project onto um, because we've evolved to have to recognize natural predators. Um, and, you know, studies show that people can detect animal movement in a video much, much more accurately and quickly than other types of movement, like, for example, a vehicle. So robots move in this autonomous way. We're biologically hardwired to project intent onto their movement. And so subconsciously, people will treat them like living things, even though consciously we we know that what we're interacting with is not alive. I mean, I guess in some ways, and, and you were saying this too, it's, it's a good thing. Because why would we want to hurt something regardless of what it is, right? I mean, I, I don't know. But, but what is the consequences of robots entering our society? And I'm asking because, I mean, obviously, as you just said, your experiments show that we tend to relate to and emphasize with, with robots in the same way as humans or animals, especially if they resemble them. But then we do, I know that we do also, and I think that you said this in the Sam Harris podcast, that we feel slightly uneasy if we're around robots that look a little bit too much like humans, but we are still able to distinguish them from humans. What, why is this? Yeah, so there's this theory of the uncanny valley, which is about um, when you design something like a robot that looks too similar to a human or something that you can automatically, um, something that you're very familiar with. Uh, something that you you interact with a robot and you can tell it's it's sort of like that thing, but it's not quite like that thing. Mm -hmm. So unlike the robots in Westworld, a robot that looks like a human but is just a little bit off, that tends to creep us out. And personally, I think that has to do with expectation management because you're expecting the robot to behave in a really specific way. And when it doesn't, it breaks the illusion. So I think the most compelling robot design is design that doesn't try to look like a human or a cat or a dog that, or something that you really know, but the robot um, is trying to look like something new, like R2-D2 from Star Wars uh, that doesn't have a humanoid shape and just makes little beeps to communicate. People tend to find that much more compelling and cute to interact with because they're not expecting it to behave a certain way. How do you yourself feel about robots such as, like, Sophia, for example, which we've <laughs> all seen on YouTube and several celebrities have met? I think Sophia's interesting. Um, I, I do find it fascinating. People keep trying to create robots that look like humans. I think we have this fascination with recreating ourselves. And, you know, I, th I think it's interesting artistically to watch that happen. But I think Sophia has been perhaps... Um, mismarketed like she's definitely kind of a PR tool and I think people tend to overestimate what Sophia is capable of um, because it hasn't been properly communicated to me Sophia is not much more than a puppet so she's not a very interesting robot to me personally um, technically speaking uh, but 
It's fun to watch people's reactions when Sophia hits the news because it's something that people are obviously very interested in. It does it does freak you out because she is very very human like and I'm and I'm sure that you know whatever you see on YouTube or TV I mean it's it's quite staged uh, to to freak people out. I don't think it's she's not that good at human interaction. Um, at least that's what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, and then I think most people uh, also have seen the somewhat freaky YouTube videos of Boston Robotics, humanoid uh, robots that uh, conduct freakishly similar maneuvers to humans. And then they also have the dogs that are able to open the doors and all these kinds of things. Uh, but they haven't reached like the mass market yet. But uh, there are a ton of robots that are already on the market. For example, Pepper that is used in banks and stores. And then you have Paro that helps people with dementia and loneliness. What do you think are the best robots on the market and which robots are most common, perhaps already in our daily lives without us even being aware? <laughs> well, um, you know, there's robotic technology in a lot of things that we use. Uh, so our cars, even if they're not autonomous vehicles, already have newer cars have a lot of you know technology in them that we could define as robotic. And then, you know, our appliances at home are getting smarter and to the extent that they can make autonomous decisions, you could also call them robots. If a dishwasher can, you know, sense something and make an autonomous decision, people might not call it a robot, but it might be, you know, a robot. Um, but I think the the um, the robots that interest me the most right now that are coming on the market are the ones that have a social function. So. Um, the, the Paro that you mentioned has been around for a while, but I think it's just so interesting. It's this baby seal that makes these little movements and sounds and is really cute and gives people the sense of nurturing something so that sounds a little bit creepy, but it's used as an animal therapy replacement. And I think it's just so, so amazing that we can use robots to help patients that are distressed and calm them down in the same way that we would use an animal, but in all of these new contexts where we can't use animals because of hygiene or safety or cost. And robots are able to fill that gap, which I just think is such an amazing use case. So any robot that replaces animal therapy or that's used as kind of a companion, not as a human replacement, but more as a pet replacement or even something completely different, I think is very compelling to me. Do you ever get pushback on people saying, because you, you were just mentioning the, the replacement for a human companion. I'm sure that people are saying, well, I mean, are, are we just going to like place robots with our with our elderly and just let them kind of be taken care of, of some something that's not really a being or not really conscious? Uh, I mean, I, I my own grandmother, I, I see that she's quite interested in robots. And I thought that was weird because I and I almost felt hurt. I was like, aren't like, I mean, don't you want humans? I mean, isn't is aren't we enough? But then it's like, yeah, she lives alone. And, you know, she doesn't really have anyone to interact with on a normal basis and stuff like that. And and in many ways, I don't think we have the capacity to be there for the elderly as much as maybe we should or we would like to or they would like us to. Um, and robots are a good kind of replacement and or supplement, I guess, uh, is a better word in those kinds of situations. But what do, what do you say when you get pushback on, on the fact that we're kind of creating robots to replace humans and human inner, human compassion? Yeah, so it's exactly what you said. It depends on whether you're using it as a replacement or a supplement. I think that robots are terrible replacements for human care. But I think we also often 
immediately leap to that conclusion when there's a robot there. So if, you know, if your grandmother got a cat, would you feel the same way? Would you feel the same hurt of like, oh, she's replacing me? Or would you say, oh, no, this is a different type of relationship, this cat that she has um, that can make her feel less lonely, but it's not replacing contact with, you know, a human. And I think that robots are similar in that we're very... Uh, complex beings and we can have all sorts of different relationships with other entities, with animals, with people, with things. And I think robots might occupy a space in there rather than being a human replacement. Now, of course, that may not stop people from trying to use them as a human replacement. And I think that's absolutely not the right way to use them. Mm. Now, you work with this all the time, um, but what's what's your own relationship to robots? I mean, I kind of picture your house like full of robots walking around, <laughs> tending to your every need, you know, cuddling with your toddler maybe. I mean, what kind of robots do you, do you own yourself? What does your home look like? We do have some robots. Um, they're mostly robot toys and pets and companions. Um, we don't have a Roomba. We have like we okay. We have we have an Alexa. We have Amazon's Alexa. Um, is she a robot or is she? Uh, not really. Although I'm I, I believe that the next step in that type of home assistant market is to create kind of a robot body around it or something that's a little more uh, has more movement or animation or is a little more compelling than just the, you know, the round thing that you know people don't really respond to. Um, so I think that's coming. But right now we have like we have this robot cat that is supposed to be marketed to old people. But my husband got it for me as a gift. We have four of the baby dinosaur robots that I used in that workshop. Um, and yeah, my my son is now old enough to interact with them, too. And it's very interesting to see because he'll treat them like he would treat an animal. Um, and as once he gets a little bit older, we're going to explain to him the difference between robots and animals. But right now, he doesn't he doesn't know the difference, and it's very interesting to watch. Huh? And and I guess I mean he's equally kind to this dinosaur robot as he would be a, a cat. Well, he's not kind because he's sixteen <laughs> months old. But Wait, we're sorry, I don't know kids. <laughs> yeah. No, he's like at that age where you have to teach him to be gentle with his hands, but he won't understand that until I don't know a year from now but you have to start teaching it already so it's good for us to have these robots actually because we don't have pets and so we're trying to teach him to be gentle to the robot in the same way that he would be gentle to a dog or a cat and in the case if, if he were to be you know rude to the robot or hurt the robot do you feel someplace inside yourself like a, a discomfort that it shouldn't be that way I mean do you feel any empathy for the the robot as it happens even if you know that it's it's not actually feeling anything I do a little bit I'm not you know supposed to say this because I'm supposed to be an objective scientist <laughs> but I've noticed that even you know the roboticists that I work with they even if they've built the robot entirely themselves, they will sometimes empathize with a robot or treat it a little bit in a social way because it's very hard not to, even if you know how it works. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it's not a robot, but I, I do have like a loving uh, kind of sense for my computer. It's just because it has this great brain in it and it's got all my stuff and I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't like, you know, it to be thrown around or anything, but... Um, okay, I have another question. Uh, women gained rights in uh, in Norway a bit more than 100 years ago, and animals have several organizations vouching for their rights. 
But I haven't seen any official laws protecting the robot rights. And albeit <laughs> some people react in a positive way to robots, there are also quite a few people who are aggra- aggravated and I guess you could say rude to robots. And as I saw in your TED talk, um, even though robots cannot feel, our behavior towards them matters for us. And as robots manifest in our society, do you also see that, think that we'll see the evolution of robot rights? I think we will, although it depends a little bit on how you define rights, because I don't think that robots anytime soon are going to deserve any sort of, you know, human level rights, like the right to live or the <laughs> right to vote or any anything like that. Um, but it's possible that we might start wanting to protect certain robots from abuse. Um, mm. If we if the design of robots gets much more lifelike and it's uncomfortable for people to see a robot being mistreated, um, they might want to push for laws to make that not possible. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but if you think about our animal mistreatment laws, they are a little bit um, hypocritical. (laughs) So we don't like kittens to be mistreated, but we're fine with the whole, you know, food industry around meat for uh, eating certain animals. And we tend to protect, protect those animals that we relate to the most. And so the idea of, you know, your child seeing a, a robot dog mistreated might be enough to make you want to not protect the robot, but protect your child, protect the societal values, and not want the robot to be mistreated for protection of our own societal values and human behavior. Um, For me personally, I think that push might come, um, but I personally would want it to be evidence-based. So I, I would want policy to be based on, is it harmful to human behavior to mistreat robots? If yes, then maybe we should create rules around that. If no, then I don't see a reason to legislate. It's possible that it's a really healthy outlet for violent behavior to kick a robot dog, in which case maybe we should let that happen. But um, we don't have that evidence yet. It still needs to be researched. Uh, It's a very difficult question to research. It's kind of like the violence in video games question, which we've never really conclusively found an answer to, but it's on a new level because it's so physical and visceral. Our relationship to these physical robots. So I think it's an interesting thing that we will need to explore. Who's responsible for the like ethics of how a robot brain works? I mean, how how kind of human and compassionate and and you know close to humans are they allowed to get in the in if we imagine a future in which like there are no like programming limitations as to what a, a robot can learn i mean do people or do these developers talk about you know how close do we want this robot to actually get to a human or are there no limits i mean is this even is this discussed well i think you know some people are in artificial intelligence and robotics specifically because they want to try and recreate as much of human intelligence as they can. Uh, The question is, you know, will they be able to or when? Because right now we don't even understand the human brain, like not at all. So it's very difficult to recreate that type of intelligence. And we have not gotten very far at all. I think in a far, far future world, it's possible that we might be able to create you know, maybe something like, because I I fully believe that, you know, we're we're just made up of puzzle pieces that can be recreated in theory. I just don't know how long it's going to take before we actually understand enough to be able to do that. And I don't think that that's really as interesting 
um, as creating something new. So recreating human intelligence is something that fascinates a lot of people. I don't think it's as useful as thinking of all the different things we could create that are different from human intelligence and maybe a different type of intelligence that we might be able to use and partner with instead of just, you know, recreating what we already have. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I often... Uh, hear people ask, what came first? Was it the the sci-fi or the technological development? I mean, a lot of the people in technology today grew up watching sci-fi, just like yourself, I guess. Um, but then, you know, I'm unsure if they're developing the future that they saw on TV as young or if the people creating the TV were looking at the actual developments in technology and using that as an inspiration for for what they were creating. But On that note, I mean, series and films such as Human and Ex Machina and Netflix series Black Mirror, they portray this future scenario in which robots live really closely with humans, almost indistinguishable from us. And it does seem totally freaky, uh, but it's also exciting. Uh, do you think, I mean, working with this every single day, do you think that this is at all realistic that, you know, one day we'll be so integrated with robots that look like us? I think it's possible. I think it's less interesting than a future where where we have all different types of robots integrated with us and maybe not necessarily humanoid ones. I think it's inevitable that we will have humanoid ones because so many people are so fascinated with creating that. But personally, I'm like, that's boring. Like, I want a robot that looks totally different than a human and that can do things that a human can't do. So um, it's... I, th I think we will get towards that world. Um, I think it probably won't be in my lifetime. Um, but, you know, we, we, like I said, we have this fascination with recreating ourselves. So what is that? Why? I don't know what that is. It's really interesting. I also have wondered, this is just, a, just a random thought, but is it gendered? Is it like, do are men more fascinated with recreating life and ourselves than women because women have an ability to do it already? Like I, <laughs> I 3D printed a human in my, in my body already. So like maybe I'm less interested in creating a robot that looks like a human. Um, oh my God, that's an incredibly interesting thought. I yeah. mean, but do you, do you see being in the industry yourself of robotics, do you see any difference in kind of what the women and men in your department or other departments are interested in creating? I do, but it's not like th that's just anecdata. It's yeah. not, you know, it's, it's not, not evidence, yeah. actual actual evidence. Um, but there are, you know, a lot of the very humanoid-looking robots are created by men. But that doesn't say much because a lot of the robots are currently created by men in general because there aren't enough women in the field. And what do you think about this thing where it seems like a lot of robots are being gendered as women? I mean, uh, uh, like if you look away from Boston Robotics, um, you have Sophia and then you have all the digital assistants, which names are, you know, Alexa. And I mean, basically every digital assistant, at least in, in, in Norway or Scandinavia, they all have female names. Why? Why is that? Uh, I think it depends. Not all of them have female names. Like I, I went and visited IBM Watson in Austin, Texas, where you can go into this room and you can interact with Watson, the supercomputer. And Watson had a very male voice and name, uh, but they had another AI in the room that was there to turn on the lights and greet the visitors. And that mm. one had a female name and voice. And I pointed it out to them. I was like, that's a little bit sexist, isn't it? To like have the female be the assistant and the male be like the supercomputer that's really intelligent. And they said they hadn't thought about it when they designed it. So I think right now it's a mixture of, you know, having a lot of you know, 20 something year old 
you know, cisgendered male people working in robotics who just don't think and they just, their, you know, biases or worldviews just kind of flow into the technology because we build what we know or what we want. And then there's the other aspect where market testing. So um, I think that Amazon, when they when they were testing Alexa, they tested a male version and, you know, 93% of people preferred the female. So it's a mixture of following the market and people just not thinking about it. Um, but I think it's problematic because you don't want to entrench certain, you know, biases or gender biases um, in the technology. Like if we... <laughs> If, if we're like, okay, the, the assistant robots are going to be female, then it just entrenches this idea that women should be there to serve um, men, which is not great. Yeah, it's also interesting that, I mean, did you say 93% of the people preferred a female voice in, in Alexa? That's what I heard. I don't, I don't know Regardless, for sure. I mean, it was a majority at least. It was a majority. Which and is, and um, I think yeah. that's probably the, the same thing for Siri. Um, you can change Siri's voice. There's a male. My, my Siri is an Australian man. Me too. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But I think most people keep the female default. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, but I did it consciously because I was like, I don't want to be, you know, bossing this woman around. I want to yeah. be bossing a man around. Yes. But uh, but uh, no, it is really um, interesting. Um, Elon Musk, uh, he famously said that there are few things that a robot will not be able to do better than a human in the future. Do you think that there is anything that a robot won't be able to do? And what is currently really hard for robots to do? Because I, I hear that, you know, Everything that's basically easy for humans is really hard for robots, and everything that's hard for robot or hard for humans is easy for robots. Yeah, that's not a bad. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I think that r- most things are still very hard for robots to do. Um, their intelligence is very specific and narrow, but in the things that they are good at, they outperform humans. So they're very good at single tasks within well-defined parameters. Um, but anything that requires understanding concepts or understanding um, context or context switching, like even, you know, my kid can like be doing something over here and then move to another area of the room and do something completely different. And that's still really, really hard for a robot to do. I, I'm not sure about Elon Musk's statement. I think that, you know, it's, it's really hard. You, you know, never say never, right? It's, it's possible that robots will be able to take over all human tasks in the future. But right now, the artificial intelligence that we're developing is very specific to individual tasks. And those may be able to be automated, but we have so much, and <laughs> there's still so much that we're better at. Um, any soft skills are, of course, terrible. Like, robots are terrible at soft skills. Robots aren't as creative. Robots can't think outside the box. Robots can't act outside the box. So still a lot of advantages for humans. So when you hear that everyone is freaking out from the rumors of automation and robotics taking every job there is, do you kind of like roll your eyes and think that, okay, well, let's not (laughs) freak out just yet? Yeah, because, you know, where I work, the robots are constantly breaking and falling over. And, (laughs) you know, it's like I, I have more of a beat on where we actually are in technology development. But that said, I do think there are some industries that will get automated um, for for example, truck drivers may be um, completely disrupted in the next 10 years because 
that's a task that we can easily automate, driving a truck down the highway. So there are individual industries that I think are going to be impacted very severely and soon, and that is something that we need to be thinking about and addressing politically and um, economically. What about us? I mean, do you think that there is a chance that humans will merge with robots themselves? I mean, do you think that there's a cyborg-like kind of future where you know, we basically kind of start looking like robots. We integrate, you know, robot elements into our bodies. I already have a chip in my hand that, you know, a lot of people just like freaked out about. It's very, it's very useless today. You have today. a chip in your I hand? I do. I wow. do have a chip. It's a, it's a, an RFID chip. So it's not like, it doesn't, it doesn't do a lot today. I can pay for the, for the train in Sweden if I want to. Wow. Uh, I could probably check into like my, my sports center if I did go to one uh, <laughs> with it. Um, but I mean, like, I guess small things like this is is tendencies that, you know, some of us might venture over to the cyborg side. Where do you think that the developments will go first? I mean, do you think that we'll maintain humanity as is in parallel with the evolution of robots? Or do you think that we'll start to integrate more and more with machines and then eventually just become one? Huh. I think both is going to happen. I think that uh, long before we can develop robots out of any sort of consciousness, we're going to be dealing with a lot of these cyborg questions, like what is a human and what types of human enhancement are okay or not okay. And um, I really think that's going to happen first, um, that, that we'll be grappling with these questions as people start merging with technology. Um, and by the time we have robots that are really smart, like people are conscious or have feelings or any of that, I think we'll be living in a completely different society with a different definition of what it means to be human. Yeah, I guess uh, we don't really know. Uh, what does it mean to be human today, I guess? <laughs> what does it mean to be human? It's like a very philosophical question. <laughs> it but uh... It's also cultural. I mean, I feel like in other countries, like in Japan, they're much more open to the idea of consciousness and souls being kind of a spectrum that can extend into the world of objects. And so I think they're much more willing to treat robots, for example, like a member of society or like something that has a soul or or a pet. Whereas in more Judeo-Christian societies, we have this clear divide between something that's alive and something that's not alive. And so that's interesting to see how that will play out as robots get more integrated and we start interacting with them in a way that contradicts our beliefs. Hmm. It's just fascinating. What are you personally most worried about in in the development of this in, in the future? And what questions should we both be asking ourselves? And what questions should we be asking the companies developing these future futuristic robots? I would say my top concern right now is that the artificial intelligence that we're developing and investing in right now relies on data. It relies on massive amounts of data to learn and to, um, you know, uh, perform tasks. And so that sets an incentive for the collection of massive amounts of data. And there's nothing really to stop that. So, you know, my, my Amazon Alexa is at home and I, you know, so I put basically a microphone in my home that is potentially recording everything, but I do it because I want the functionality of the robot. And I think that's just going to increase where, you know, the more data a robot has about you, the better it's going to be able to serve you. And so consumers won't have an incentive to not give that information. And there's really only, you know, governments and consumer protection agencies that 
we'll be able to stem this tide, I think, because companies are going to want to collect as much data as possible. I feel like I see a tendency, at least in Europe, um, maybe after the implementation of GDPR, that people are more and more concerned about privacy and less and less willing to give up their privacy for the benefit of convenience. Yes. Do you see see that? Yeah, in Europe, I see it. I see it a little bit in Europe. Um, In the U.S., not so much. So I think the Europeans are (laughs) light years ahead of the United States in thinking about these things. And um, I'm hopeful that that's enough uh, because, you know, capitalism is a strong force. And um, these there there are some companies that have a lot of power right now. There are, th- I think, five companies in the world that really have uh, most of the data that is being used to power AI systems. And I'm just hoping that the Europeans can stay strong and stand up for their rights. I hope so, too. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's a good trend, but it's also like I don't want it to slow down innovation at the same time because it's it's so many exciting things. And I know that I'm biased, like I'm very optimistic about the future. And obviously it can't be that great if every company can just do exactly what they want without any, you know, ethical concerns. But um yeah, I, I'm 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 hopeful that we'll continue at the pace that we are, but then doing it in a better way that actually I don't know is good for everyone. Um, but now we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, I could talk to you forever, but I do have three questions uh, before I let you go out into the wilder world of um, Oslo Business Forum. If you could give your 20 year old self one or two pieces of advice, uh, what would you tell you? Oh my goodness, 20 year old me, you will regret dating bad people in your 20s um (laughs) (laughs) don't don't get married until you're 30 at least um let's see 20s I would tell myself to be less afraid of not following people's advice I found that mentors are need to be taken with a grain of salt because they always advise you to do it exactly what they did um so that's an important one and then i would probably tell myself to drink more water water yeah Mm. i had too many hangovers (laughs) yeah no i can uh, i can relate to all of those three actually um what's your favorite podcast (sighs) you know i don't listen to a lot of podcasts it's very sad i'm yeah i'm more of a visual learner let's see well, you could just tell me what your favorite visual outlet for words. I don't know, movie, <laughs> series, anything. What? I don't know. Well, you know, actually, I do listen to a lot of This American Life. Oh, yeah. Um, that's that's just such a classic. And it's I just learned podcast. so much from that podcast. Yeah, it's a good podcast. So finally, where should people go to follow you if they want to keep learning about your fascinating research uh, at MIT? Um, I'm on Twitter. Grok, G-R-O-K underscore. And uh, you can also Google me. I have a homepage. And yeah. Right Are you now. on Instagram or Facebook? I'm on Instagram. I'm on, I don't use Facebook. I'm definitely on Instagram. So same, same handle, Grok underscore. Okay, cool. 
Uh, and then I wanted to thank you because I recently listened to an interview with you where you said that you once or for a while ago considered leaving tech to, to go join a nonprofit and help the world or contribute to humanity. But then you decided to stay in the field of technology uh, from the advice of a colleague, I believe, uh, and be one of the few women that we so desperately need in technology so that more young girls like you think that, yes, of course, they can become roboticists. So thank you so much for staying in the field of tech and being awesome. Um, thank, thank you. you so much for joining us at this podcast. Thank you. This was wonderful. You're listening to The Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with experts from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Reynas. <laughs>